This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology, as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Hello from Crete. I am back with two new episodes of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise, chapters 15 and 16, If you are just tuning in now, go back to chapter one, some episodes back. And as always, this story is for adults. It is erotic and it is at times triggering. And I think I'll just get into it. And again, thank you so much for your enthusiastic listenership of this audio novella. Chapter 15. We arrived to the Kundalini Yoga Festival in Joshua Tree, buy Aiden a ticket, and park for car camping. The road to the campsite becomes less and less solid until it is sandy and interspersed with cacti. Aiden is driving. He supposes if we go further, my car will get stuck in the sand. He assesses the maneuver and pushes forward, and we are stuck, car revving. We have to get out to push the car. I'm mad, and Aiden senses it, so he asks. I'm mad you got the car stuck just after sensing it was going to happen. Well, it doesn't do us and this situation any good for you to be mad. Help me. I'm no good for it, I warn. He stays at the wheel while I push. Eventually, another man approaches to replace my futile pushing, and they get the car out of the sand and into a spot where we can set up camp. I'm not irritated with Aiden anymore, but more at myself for how bratty I am and how much I see it when I'm around other people for extended periods of time, and less when I'm alone. Aiden takes charge with the tent set up too, simply enlisting me to help. The first person I meet at the festival is an older woman with a pixie haircut who has a very open-hearted and yet poised, stoic demeanor. She is curious about my astrology work and getting a reading someday. Tearing up, she tells me her most pressing desire in this life is to know God. This festival is another environment that reflects Aiden well. People are largely in their bodies, even though it's kundalini. Kundalini yoga was a practice I took on as a bridge to become more embodied. I felt that the energetic and mystical quality of it reflected my psychic openness and I hope to become more athletic in the future. Largely, Aiden could hug and massage people here the way he does, and people would likely just melt and in response, massage him back and exclaim that he gives the best hugs. No one here would rebuke him. Aiden had a talent for talking to anyone, but here I could see it lighting him up even more. While Aiden was like a knight at my service at the writer's conference, here he wishes to separate and come back together, like we do at parties. We are together in a moment where a man on stage after a musical performance is inviting everyone into a moment of gratitude. The performers before him were in tears at how receptive the audience was, 
how of course they love playing music, but we are the best to play for. The man invites us into a moment of gratitude and Aiden is in tears, looking into my eyes. In a moment of separation, I meet a woman named Sarah who is at the festival with her partner. She teaches me about human design, which I'd never heard of before, and is the first person to tell me that I'm a projector and that my strategy is to wait for the invitation. It would be a while before I even knew what that meant. Aiden is a generator, I find out. She tells me that Aiden, as a generator, produces energy, and his work is to find out how to channel it. Projectors don't have a reliable energy source of their own. They can be energized by generators, but they guide energy, mostly of the generators. I think of all the late nights that Aiden wants to keep partying and talking to everyone until every last person has left and he's the last one standing, and how for hours before then, I was practically on the floor, dying, tugging at his pant leg. But in reality, how I rallied, suppressed my yawning, tried my absolute hardest to keep up with his energy, but how, if he was directing his energy at me and not at the party, I was very much awake. Am I a vampire? I panic slightly. I don't know what to do with this information. Sarah reassures me that projectors offer a lot of value to the world. It's not their raw energizer bunny stamina that makes us special. It's our wisdom and sight and rarefied expertise. And that yes, generators recognizing us gives us energy, but we give them guidance. It's symbiotic. Sarah is traveling the world with her partner in a van, or we could say the country. She and her partner seem eager to connect with Aiden and I, and I am not that used to the elite world of couples and its secret invitations. Aiden and I do a Kriya in a giant yurt with hundreds of people. Aiden is used to doing yoga sets, sometimes the same hour-long set, three times in a row. He feels complete but keeps going as soon as sweat drips down his forehead and rolls off his nose to the floor. Aiden carries around his didgeridoo, which becomes a conversation starter a number of times. An older woman who looks like the mom of a popular high schooler approaches us, but as though I'm not there at all. What is that? She asks Aiden. Aiden explains. Can I touch it? Sure. Aiden hands it to her. She continues to fawn over it while talking to Aiden. I forget what she is saying, but it's the way she looks into his eyes and holds the base of the didgeridoo with one hand while she twists her other hand up and down the shaft of it. During another large group event, we are all chanting together. I am aware that Mars is stationing, slowing down in the sky, about to station retrograde within a couple of weeks. I feel Mars in our collective fire, our collective vigor. We have our hands on our hearts. We are all recognizing something higher, God. And it gives me a flashback of the Pledge of Allegiance that I did every day in grade school. How I learned as a child to put my hand on my heart and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I saw images of soldiers marching. I felt the vitality of nationalism, the way nationalism gave groups of people a common soul fire. But this festival, this moment, was another octave. What if everyone just became spiritual? 
What if we all had a better relationship with Mars, knew how to properly channel it, how to sublimate it, so that instead of getting off to war, we as a society could do better? It fills me up with this deep sadness that the collective so often misuses vital energy. And also I'm filled with wonder at this realization that Mars cannot go unfed. We need to be committed to more brilliant ways to be alive than war. We attend an all-night sound bath. Aiden leaves me at one point to grab some things for me to be warm. A jacket, a blanket, even a pillow. When he comes back, I fall asleep with him there, in the open air with hundreds of people. The food at the festival was buffet-style, clean, vegan, satisfying. Aiden adores it. Says restaurants should make stuff like this that is so simple and wholesome. He doesn't understand why it isn't always like this. Aiden is one who goes hungry, who lives in poverty essentially, who goes to the food bank and dumpster dives and that isn't always enough. And even though there is never a shortage of food on the trip, he still eats as though there is, and he knows it while he does it. In a kind of merging with him, I also end up eating way more than I normally would. We are often bloated before bed, looking in the mirror and laughing at our bellies, waking up skinny and fit again, him with a returned six-pack. At the last lunch of the festival as everyone is leaving, Aiden has done his usual thing of making a game, of putting as much food into the bowl as possible, creating a tower with a hidden heart of quinoa covered in vegetables, avocado, shredded beets and carrots, and a thick mound of nutritional yeast. You're perfectly allowed to go back for seconds, but he just likes to do it this way. As he's squishing the food at the apex of the tower to keep it from tumbling over, he brings up a topic he'd been speaking to the last week, about being comfortable with death. This time, I can't stand it anymore. Why do you talk like that, being comfortable with death? We are alive, living, we have aspirations, things to accomplish, lives to live, and I'm not comfortable with you dying. I would be devastated. And even just thinking about it is sickening. But you have to be comfortable with it, he argues. It happens for everyone at some point. I had not yet learned the concept that part of masculinity is living without the fear of death. In my mind, Aiden speaking of death is dangerous, like tempting death herself. And further, it feels like a betrayal. Being with him fulfills me in a way that while precarious for all the ways I fear losing him, it still feels like I've arrived in life. Our connection gives me purpose, meaning, anchor. And it appears that he is okay with dying and squandering all of this. And the betrayal, further, is that the paradise our connection is, that he feels too, is like a luxury chariot that prepares him for death, gives him the philosophical space for the reverie. He doesn't want to stop talking about death just because I don't like it, just like he doesn't like not telling his mom about the drugs he takes, or his ex-girlfriend Kat about his psychic dreams or the details of the time he cheated on her and told her right after, but wanted to tell her about how it was meaningful and he loves them both, but ultimately wants to be with Kat. 
He teeters between extreme collaboration and being the exact vision of grace and harmony and attunement and not caring at all about how uncomfortable he makes other people when he's just being himself. And it's like whiplash to have his attention in one moment and his aloof, airy lack of concern in another. His musings on death are only interrupted by a Costa Rican woman sitting down with us. She lives on a communal farm. Her skin is luminescent and dewy like an angel. Aiden seems fascinated by their conversation, remarking at what a wonderful human she is when she leaves. We camp the extra night that is allotted, though the festival has ended. We wake up in the tent and Aiden runs a finger over my sex. The gentle, psychic way he touches me feels like it opens my body. We hadn't been intimate much during the festival, but it catches up to us. Savage, sweet, steam. Gray cocoon of the tent, deserted campsite, swirling tunnels of light. Something about this time opens up a deeper channel, but not a layer that's easy to meet. It's a layer that feels like eternity and the awareness of death. Simultaneous with a kind of pleasure and tantric love, I feel like I'd die without, but I have so much of now. We take a shower for the first time the entire festival. With an outdoor shower, I couldn't even fathom how to operate by myself, as per my usual, help me. Aiden gets the water scorching hot. The air, by contrast, is windy and cold. And so even with the hot water, it's hard to stay warm. My face reaches his chest, and from our bodies standing close in the shower, it is his torso that I face, hard and perfect. As a kid, I had a reoccurring dream that had a haunting music in it that I could never hum or imitate. It's a melody I can't capture, but I can remember it, like an echo, like a gray vapor hanging in the air in a space where black music notes once passed a long time ago. A memory of music. This is what I feel in the shower. We are laughing, feeling sexy, hovering by the source of heat, and gazing into his body and the very blue, sunny, but cold sky behind him. I feel as though this moment and my future memory of it is lasting forever and ever and ever. We explore the desert afterward the rock formations made out of quartz crystals, the flowering cacti. On a distant hill, we can see a young man in a black t-shirt and shorts. Aiden thinks something may be wrong, so he goes to climb to him, sounding his didgeridoo like a horn at various plateaus. Aiden reports back to me that the man is lost. He is close behind, arrives to us disoriented, thirsty. We help him until he finds his friend. I have a small amount of my dad's ashes to release here. My dad loved traveling, and he hadn't been to Joshua Tree before, even though it was close to where I grew up. Aiden insists that we sing. He slows down the frame of time, tells me this is a big event, and he will see to it that it happens with ceremony. I don't know any songs or melodies. I just sing tones, and I see sparkling lights when I close my eyes that hover in place with my tones. 
My inner world feels cavernous. Aiden backs me with the didgeridoo. What comes through my throat is strange, guttural. I feel like I'm doing it wrong. But the lights comfort me. The grief I feel is ancient, memoryless. Chapter 16, Farmington, New Mexico. On the way, Aiden finds a giant metal grid, tall as a five or six story building, climbs it somewhat far up and hangs down upside down, balancing on the metal beams with the tops of his feet as grip, has me photograph him in a bat pose. We are here for a Navajo first laugh ceremony for Aiden's newborn niece. His sister married a Navajo man, and they just had their first child. The ceremony celebrates the occasion of a baby's first laugh as a sign of the soul who comes here of spirit, choosing this earthly life, their family, and their community. We stay at a simple economy inn, next to a tall, dusty mountain and almost nothing else. We are expecting a basic motel, but are delighted to find colorful walls and colorful tiles, a big green bathtub, and a random clown painting above the bed. Aiden and I sometimes play these Russian characters, Svetlana and Sergei, who are quite manically expressive toward each other. Through Svetlana, a direct line to my actual ancestry and a culture I'm relatively familiar with, I can somewhat honestly express my manic love for Aiden, prostrate myself emphatically before Sergei. Sergei, you make me insane. Our love so intense it feels wrong. Ever since I was a small child, I warmed myself through cold winter night, imagining you, this love. You bring fire to coldest parts of inner being of mine. My heart smolders. Embers of love making stay burning. I am inferno for you. I am desire. Sergei, you are such strong man. Oh, Sergei, Sergei. Sergei is always wildly receptive, mirroring my intensity and jilted accent, picking me up so I can straddle him, eats my face, freaks out over the intoxication of me. One of our first nights here, we are in the shower. Aiden is calling me with his body to make love. And for the first time, I don't want to, but I swirl in this confused state of how am I to turn down this beautiful moment, this God, the steam surrounding us, this getaway in the middle of nowhere. Is something wrong? Aiden asks gently. You're so perceptive, I say. I feel like I don't want it right now, but I felt this trauma space overcome me like I had to. We don't have to. Aiden smiles and looks deeply into me. I only want it if you want it. Part of me is clenched, expecting the night to become soured, mundane. But instead we talk and laugh and go to sleep, curled up together. I meet Aiden's mom and stepdad, not Aiden's abusive biological father, at a cafe. Aiden's mom is athletic, in hiking clothes and sneakers, tall, well-postured. 
Eden hasn't hidden the nature of our relationship, and I'm not expected to act in any certain way. But I notice that Eden's mom is indifferent seeming to me, friendly, but not immediately welcoming, like my mom is to new prospective family members. It wasn't just Aiden, but my friends growing up and my brother's partners too. I don't like it. I'm eager to make a good impression and I receive hardly any feedback. Aiden loves his mom, but he doesn't necessarily feel seen or understood. He feels judged. He continues to be obtusely honest with her anyway. I try to understand why she was a bystander to Aiden's abusive childhood at the hands of his father. And the strange way that the worst happened in secret, and yet Aiden's earliest memory is of his mom holding him as a baby so tight with terror, protecting him from his father as she has her back to Aiden's empty crib. She just seems like a normal, however distant person now. Thankfully, partnered with someone else, to this man who seems not only sane, but helpful and good-natured toward Aiden. Aiden's sister and brother-in-law invite us to a game of frisbee golf some days before the first laugh ceremony. Aiden's sister seems a lot different from Aiden, except they did do acid together on a long road trip home once. Aiden says that their dad was always very sweet to her. Aiden probably goes years without seeing her. She and I bond over loving the show Broad City. When we watch a few episodes, Aiden gets that the show is funny, but the friendship between Abby and Alana reminds him of his ex and his ex's best friend, and he has contention for that friendship. They were close as twins, and when Kat was mad at Aiden, the friend only fed the flames. But then when times were good, the friend was enthusiastic and inclusive. Aiden didn't like the constant mixed signals, the pettiness, and the competition between him and the friend due to Kat's and Mesh closeness with the both of them, and her constant swaying favor between them, as if it were rationed. Aiden just wanted everyone to get along. Aiden speaks like he didn't like it, but it seems like he was getting off on the roller coaster of it and getting to win Kat swirling around in the injustice of it all. He wasn't a no to the drama, and his resentment feels fresh. I received news one night that my ex, the one I healed from with Aiden, was moving away from Olympia. Aiden says we can go home so I could say goodbye. Absolutely not. I would rather be here with you. You remember what I've told you about that relationship. That door is closed, we're just friends. My loyalty is to you. It's not important enough to see him that we'd cut our trip short. Aiden insists that it's okay and that I might really want that. I feel he doesn't believe me, and I am desperate and infuriated. I remember most vividly from the first laugh ceremony, the fry bread. I remember the ceremonialist, the main speaker, the hum of his words too distant to recount. Aiden and I stay in Farmington for a long time because we love the motel and making love here. I approach him from behind as he looks at himself in the mirror, tending to his hair, his beauty. I don't want kids right now, I say, but my body definitely wants kids with you. 
Enan dramatically turns away from the mirror, as though to beam a spotlight of the sun itself away from his self-reflection and straight toward me, like ricochet back and forth between us, like sunlight on the sea. His face transforms into a cherishing gaze, like he is talking to a baby animal or a baby human. He looks at me and says, I don't think I could refuse you, and pins me back to the bed. He means he would impregnate me if I asked him to. Or perhaps it is his heart's first instinctual response. In either case, my pussy-to-heart channel lights up even more explosively to end my animal, love this animal, to be initiated again and again into deeper spirals of the womb and its mind-obliterating oracle. Thank you.